Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a cloudy and cool autumn day here in the capital is Keith Wildman. Keith is the owner of The Record Cafe, an independent record shop beer cafe and charcuterie based in Bradford, West Yorkshire. Uh, Keith, very warm welcome to yourself this evening and thank you ever so much for joining us on the programme. Yeah, not a problem. Great to be here. Um, Likewise, Keith, it's a pleasure for us welcoming you onto the airwaves with us. Now, um, COVID-19 has, of course, been the dominant um, story throughout the headlines in 2020, and it's thrown up a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life. Um, But for a business owner in the hospitality sector such as yourself, to what extent has it changed things for you? It's changed everything, really. Um, it's hard, to, it's hard to think of any aspect of uh, anyone's life that hasn't been affected by it, um, you know, personally and in business. But from a from a work point of view, it, it's just it changed absolutely everything. It's changed how we operate. It's changed how we think about things. It's changed um, just the whole makeup of the business. Um, just everything from the day to day running to the long term planning to how we interact with customers to how customers interact with us to how we interact with suppliers. Um, the whole business model has, uh, has completely changed, and uh, in a way, um, it's been good. It's been a good challenge because um, you know we've been going for six years now, and you can kind of fall into um, something of a, of a comfortable routine. So, from from one point of view, you know, it's been it's been a challenge to to, to get out of that routine, to try new things, to uh, maybe drop things that that you were getting maybe overly comfortable with. There's, there's some things that you're doing every day, and, you, and um, you maybe you think, well, it was time to drop that because you've always done it, you carry on doing it. So, it's been a good opportunity to uh, to drop things and a good opportunity to, as I say, try new things that um, we'd probably. If and when, or hopefully when um, things go back to normal, uh, you know we'll, we'll we'll carry on doing. And thinking about when we might start to see a return to some form of normality, how long do you think we're going to be sort of stuck in this sort of state of stasis for? Because um, even when we may have a working vaccine, and of course, God willing, fingers crossed, that does happen sooner rather than later, um, there might still be a little bit of time needed for consumer confidence to come back and people to sort of summon up the courage to go out again into public places and spend money and be around other people just because of the anxiety that's going to be caused by this, even when the virus itself is no longer a present danger. Um, yeah, that, that's definitely true. Um, you know, back in March, I was thinking, um, you know, maybe two or three months. I, I, had, I had penciled in September for kind of reopening again. Mm. And then um, I did hold back from reopening because I was worried that uh, whilst we could reopen and put everything in place, um, people, like you say, might not want to come out. Um, they've almost done too, too much of a good job in um, get, getting through to people how dangerous it is because how do you start to unpick that mentality from people um, with the masks now obviously masks are uh, compulsory how do you then when this is over tell people 
don't have to wear a mask. I think there's going to be a lot of a, almost like a comfort blanket issue with with, with a lot of these things with people reluctant to go out, uh, and it changes all the time. You know, if you'd have asked me a month ago, I might have thought would be okay for Christmas. Um, now, it just seems that um, we're looking at probably the next six months. So that's autumn, or you know, winter, autumn, winter, mm. and then maybe spring. And I know they were talking about possibly a vaccine. Uh, the middle by the middle of next year, but realistically, um, I think this is just how it is, and we're, we're just having to adapt rather than thinking this is a temporary issue. It just seems this is how it is now, mm. um, and we just have to. Uh, and a lot of it is so much common sense, um, you know, just kind of um, limiting the opportunity for something to pass from one person to another. And I think if you just take it as simple as that in your day to day life and in your business stopping something transmitting from one person to mm-hmm. another, that it does become a lot easier to um, to, to work with and to, and to um, it doesn't become too overwhelming. Um, if you start thinking too much about the bigger picture, it can be too overwhelming. But mm-hmm. certainly, I'd, you know, I'll be thinking, hopefully this time next year, um, we can be some semblance of normality. But, um, you know, if you think that, you know, when we are really busy, we can be absolutely packed. And from to get from here to there, mm-hmm does seem an incredibly long way off it does it's it's difficult to plan for the future at the moment as well isn't it just because in the short term things can change at such little notice that businesses are sort of in a cycle of having to be reactive to changing guidelines and circumstances and it's hard therefore to take a bit of a proactive standpoint and really plan for the future because there isn't really a long term as such anymore you can't see ahead to months and years it's more days and weeks at best at the minute isn't it yeah, I mean, just just this past week, um, or the past sort of fortnight, um, they, they, uh, they, they seem to simplify the rules with, with the rule of six and wearing masks and a 10 p.m. curfew. And then they suggested six months. And I thought, okay, right, well, this is what we're dealing with for the next six months. And then a week later, they changed it to these um, new tiers. Bradford is currently in tier two, which mm. has gone back to the no mixing of households. Uh, and now there's even uh, rumours of uh, going into tier three. And this is in the space of two or three days. So your entire business model has probably changed three times in the space of 10 days. So the, there's just no way of really coming up with any long-term uh, and especially when you're dealing with the um, the bar side of things and the beer side of things and, and the real ale side of things where you know you, you do need to be planning um, in terms of quality of what you're offering you, you do need to be planning three or four or a week you know a week ahead um, we had a lot of wastage back in March when um, when we had to close and I had to throw the best part of a thousand pints away and a lot of you know and, and it was all really good stuff as well it was you know, it was, it was amazing things that have been really excited about offering um so i'm not in a hurry to get in that position again so we are we are uh, it has been a very good exercise in kind of frugality and and living hand to mouth um it's been quite interesting um um, from that point of view Mm. um but but it's it's um it really is just taking days at a time uh, which i'm kind of used to now um as i say sometimes i think you step back and talk about and think about it, it would seem a bit overwhelming but when you're in the middle of it doing it uh, and and it is a lot easier to, to, to sort of get your head around and do. Mm. It's interesting that you mentioned, of course, the fact that it's been a bit of a learning curve as being a positive thing. Um, of course, as well as learning to be sort of frugal and more kind of hand to mouth as a uh, business owner. Is there anything else that you can say that this experience of crisis management has taught you or any other positives that there might be from all of this? Um, 
I think it teaches you. It, it does sound a bit corny, but to sort of um, to, to, to believe in yourself, and that a lot of the time, mm. um, your first thoughts are always right. I've, I've always been a big believer in in your initial thoughts on things, your gut feeling, your initial reaction is always the right thing to do. I think sometimes you can um, you can think of an idea, or you can think of the right other thing to do, and then you can you can start looking at it and analysing it, and almost talking yourself out of it and thinking of all the other options when your initial reaction was was the right thing. And I think with it being so kind of, uh, as it has been recently, fast-paced, you don't really have time to um, overanalyze things. And um, a lot of the time, you, you, put, you put yourself in a position where you, you've got instincts and you, you have got you where you are. Um, so you, sometimes you've got to remember that, that you know you are where you are because of the decisions you've made. And a lot of the time, the decisions mm. you made are because that's what you want to do and that's what you think is the right thing. And if you start sort of compromising or, or, or self-doubt or anything like that, it's, it never ends well. So, yeah, that this, this has kind of reaffirmed that um, I think, I mean, uh, almost, almost not, not, not necessarily quick decisions, but you've got instinct to think is, is more often right. Um, and it's been it's been great to um, to, to, to to work with um, the team I've got around me and the customers that, that, that we've got um, in, in a kind of environment where um, we're very lucky that people that the customers um, really really enjoy what we do. So they're kind of on your side. So mm. um, you're not fighting with the rules and the regulations. They're, they're, you know they're more than willing to uh, to go along with the rules and regulations because they enjoy coming in. They appreciate that the only way we can survive is if we do follow the rules and regulations. Um, so that, you know, it, it's nice. Again, you're not, you don't feel like um, you're, you're a school teacher or you're a, you know, you, you start shouting instructions at people because they are willing to go along with it. And, and, and staff as well, you know, that is, um, they've been absolutely brilliant in that they appreciate, you know, how hard we've got to work now. It, it, the workload mm. um, is, is um, you're almost asking for sort of double the workload for the turnover of half the workload, if you say, I mean, you know, for, it's twice as much work for, you know, almost half as much money um, in terms of what we take. So it, it, it's, but everyone appreciates that. So, um, yeah, it has been, it's difficult to say benefits, but it, it's mm. certainly, um, it, it's certainly, those are the positives you can, you can possibly take. And it is another cliche that I'm going to throw out here, but um, they do say that in times of adversity, people do stand up and be counted. It's sort of you mentioned with your staff there, they've stood up and been counted during this time. And also you learn more about yourself when things are going badly or when it's a hard time than when things are going well. And it has proven to be the case. And we do have learning curves. We do embrace them. We do use them as opportunities to improve. And fundamentally, a large part of leadership is about learning and constantly and continuously improving. And COVID's been no different, as we've seen. It's been an opportunity for people to learn new things about their businesses, how resilient they are. And also, you mentioned as well that sometimes you're just so drawn into having to think quickly and react and all of that sort of thing that you don't really get time to overanalyze things. So you are just reactive, you're making quick decisions and you're acting on instinct and sometimes that can be the best thing. But when you're sort of drawn into the hectic world of sort of operating in that way, do you not find that it becomes a little bit mentally taxing after a while or do you not really have too much time to think about that? Um, it's certainly very um, very mentally draining um, and, and physically because it's, it's a very physical job and it's um, a very uh, a mentally challenging job, and especially 
um, you know, when you're actually working behind the bar, when you're working in the, you know, on the, on the, sort of the shop floor, uh, having to enforce the rules as well as, you know, come up with uh, the systems and all all that's involved. It's all round, just very, very exhausting. But then, you know, but then so many jobs are, you know, <laughs> you know we're, not, we're, not, we're not masters. It's, uh, you know, I think, you know, everyone's going through a, through a, through a tough time. Everyone's sort of physically and mentally, um, you know, drained. Um, but it, it is, it is... Um, it is tough, and I think you can um, you can take a lot of consolation from, as I say, the people around you, whether it be staff or customers, uh, that, that appreciate uh, you know it's kind of what you're going through. Um, and I think you know that again, like I, like I said before, it is one of the positives, and um, it's um, you know it is, it is just a very very odd times, and, and I think um, like you say, when we do try and um, overanalyze things. It just it just doesn't yeah it doesn't doesn't work well. It doesn't. Sometimes it is better if we don't take too much time thinking about things. Um, but I think at the same time as well, I mean, there are always instances where as a leader, just for mental health and well-being's sake, you do have to kind of take a little bit of a step back, don't you? Because mental health and well-being, um, it has been thrust back into the limelight by this whole pandemic situation. And it's important to make sure that you do safeguard your own as well as also take responsibility for that of those around you as well as a business leader. Well, it is definitely, um, you know, one of the, some of the best advice um, I was given and I've, I've given to, to other people is just you know, have a day off, you know, have a day off a week. Mm. And it's, it's, it's really tough because, you know, I often feel guilty for, for um, you know, for not being there and, you know, or having a day off. And, and you shouldn't really because you, you just, you, you literally cannot do absolutely everything, much as you want to do everything. And, you know, and, and I'm really kind of just well, hands on with absolutely everything and like everything done a certain way. We've got, you know, ways of doing absolutely every single thing. Well, you know, you can't be there all the time and you can't do absolutely everything. Uh, and if you try to, you end up just, you end up just, just making simple mistakes. And, um, yeah, and then those simple mistakes have snowballed into something that reveals itself later. So just having something like a day off a week, um, it, it just makes, all, it really does just make all the difference. And um, you, you do need to be, you know, sort of mentally fresh um, to um, you know to, to sort of tackle everything that's um, you know that's going on at the minute. It's um, as I say, the, the conversations we have, it, it's there's not a right lot else to talk about as well. <laughs> this is the thing that we're talking about all now, and um, you know, it, it, talking with staff, talking with customers. Literally, this is the only topic of conversation, so that can be very, very. Mm. Draining. Um, you know, there's, there's no films, there's no football you can particularly go and watch. Or there's nothing else really other than this. And it's so kind of it's got its tentacles into every single aspect of our personal, private, everything lives. And um, that whatever conversation you have just comes back to it. So it can be very draining after a day of constantly having the same sort of looping conversations about um, about the same thing. You know, you do need to sort of get away and just have a bit of time away and. Uh, Try, try and think about something else. You do. You're absolutely right, Keith. And um, thinking now just about the uh, the future, I mean, I know we're not armed with crystal balls and we don't really know what it's going to bring. It is going to be an uncertain time for business as we head into the uh, the winter and we sort of wait on when there'll be a vaccine in place, what the government will do. But in an ideal world, where do you want your business to be in 12 months' time, considering everything going on? Um. I would like us to be in the, you know, if we're in the same position as we are now, I'd be, I'd be, 
I'd, I'd be happy in terms of, um, you know, just actually still, maybe still being here sounds a bit dramatic, but, but possibly not because you just absolutely, you know, there is no knowing what, what is around the corner. So if, if we if we, I would say if we're in a position this time next year to be able to um, improve what we're doing, you know, improve, improve the offering, improve, improve on how we are, I would say, if we're in a position where we can, um, you know, puts energy and money into improving the business uh, into into how I'd want it to be in the future, then I would say that would be a good position. That's probably the best way of, um, uh, of putting it. I completely understand where you're coming from from that point of view, Keith. And I do certainly wish you and the business all the best going into the uh, the next 12 months. Um, and just considering um, how many variables there still are in all of this, I actually think it would be really valuable to catch up at some point in the next year and have you back on the show just to see how things behind the scenes are coming along. And we can then assess just what has changed in the time between our conversations. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More than happy to do that, yes. I'd welcome that opportunity. It's a shame we are just about out of time on the programme today. Otherwise, I'm sure we could discuss the issue long into the evening uh, today. But um, I've really enjoyed having you with us, Keith. It's been such a pleasure having you um, on the airwaves alongside me. And uh, most importantly, until we do get the opportunity to touch base again in future, hopefully, uh, please do take care and stay safe with everything that's still going on because we're certainly not out of the woods with this one yet, that's for sure. And let's just keep our fingers crossed that it will be positive trajectory uh, from here and we'll be out of the rut sooner rather than later. Thank you. Cheers. Um, and I would also extend that message to every single one of the listeners that are tuning into the podcast today as well. Please do continue to be sensible, stay well, look after yourselves, be considerate of others too, because it makes such a difference in saving lives. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Keith Wildman, owner of the Record Cafe in Bradford, onto today's programme. Coming up next on the show today, we'll be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Um, during his professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City, among other clubs. But of course, he remains most well known for that famous treble in England's 4-2 triumph over West Germany back at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago, which saw the three Lions lift the Jules Rimet trophy. It also made Sir Jeff the only man to this day to have netted a hat-trick in a World Cup final. He'll be joining us on the programme to look back at some of the highlights of his career, including that final, discussing the importance of robust leadership throughout and leaving a message of thanks for our wonderful NHS who've been doing all they can during this most trying time. That is coming up next. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope it might last. Absolutely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I would want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I get that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run 
uh, with this record and goodness me, yeah, it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player, uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, it would be someone like Harry, who's a fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm, want England to be successful. I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just I really want the country to do well in, in anything, in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I want wanting to bury it. And I'll be absolutely, I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England, England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my uh, my achievements about the team being successful, whether I got two or three, in one sense is, is uh, I wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand we all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, if the game's nearly finished, I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, hand still Kowski the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say uh, I miss hit it and it and it flew in but I was thinking about wasting time not so much about uh, but certainly what I was going to do which which sorry I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours and it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yes, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that that, that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks, uh, of making it, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life an element of maybe doing something that you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, 
this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now being replaced by the National Health Service. And we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts. And we're hanging out thank you banners, displaying drawings of rainbows, very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what, what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run up with enough, enough funding for it. And so on, but really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and important it is to have a health service that works efficiently, and to see individually the the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on, and and also into what was also for me fantastic, all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. Uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective, uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and, and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS, fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that... I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coming to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, and clever enough, and technically good enough to, to be around to be a, a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, is the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to 
prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined um, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined move from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach. It's a team coach who's a teacher, effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Alf, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. Managing people, uh, different characters, and, and all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over different characters, strengths, players into a unit to play for uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can say I can't be as I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic. Uh, people in my life in my in my football life and i suppose for every sir alf ramsey and ron greenwood um, as well that you have worked with there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their um of course their peak but just of course just but just as much as you can learn from of course coaches that do get the best out of players you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well because that experience can ultimately mold you as a person can't it Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think it, leadership's important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management; they have it. But I think um, you you can learn if you're central enough to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think well, like that was a really stupid thing to do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes but it's learning it's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their their career completely understand exactly where you're coming from I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly um, during your Absolutely. conversation um, with Jonathan back in February um, Sir Jeff I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood but I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time I read somewhere that during your teenage years you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that as the saying goes yeah that's absolutely true when in, in those uh, medieval days you there were, you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play you um, in our road in Greenway as it was called in Chelmsford 
we that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road um, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B because there weren't as many cars. No, we didn't as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and so it's three of us play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in. Uh, flying, you know, and making balsa wood gliders, and uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, uh, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court, and uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street, and uh, we were actually. But that that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the. the the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We lived, we lived, I was born in Ashton under line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably, I was the eldest of three, when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was uh, had a big influence going back to that third gold in the World Cup in many years in the back garden and when we moved on to a, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot and so I at that time and even today it's, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed and I was maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton even Jack Charlton his brother didn't know which was his best foot he, he was fantastic but I was pretty pretty um, um Two-footed, and a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leaving age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, Although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or, uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. But the problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about as I, I 
kindly put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then or centre-half at school. Um, he uh, said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, the sort of messing about between the two. I had one first-class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got Norton and Norton on out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game, funny. I filmed a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, v Lancashire up. Up in their territory, but that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till what September, whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games for those two or three years. Extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it and from a standing start I think my first season around I think September, October I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool and I think I played about 23, 24 games no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals like one in two from a standing start for a mm. midfield player so um, quite changed dramatically um, that was 60, 62, 63 season the three years before the World Cup and when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy, the programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, and not just setting balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd you, have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. 
Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player in, but in the squad and Ray Wilson, our left back, I'd always argue was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup from world-class players. And Banksy was up there, w- w- not with the best, the best for me. And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them described trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that, that has come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was uh, which is, I can see in myself. I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charlton and the Jimmy Greaves and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Watkins saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across. The, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player. But I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mould, mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times, uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months. And I think he, it was a, a big help to getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham, that we was a great time for the club, and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the uh, the the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi final. 
So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was I wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge then. I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year, but I made very little contributions to that success the club had. So, um, yes, it, the, the American experience was just fantastic. I never thought of long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters. And my wife, and she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was, that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a, just a... I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about, I think, a month, I think it was. And I enjoyed the experience. And I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. <laughs> New kitchen. <laughs> so it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend, as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's... I think the that kind of... Uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe maybe longer maybe in longer not some sort of immediately after you finish playing but in the long term when um, uh, and I always joke when people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend and, and I always joke and say you, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70 and I think the, the whatever the word is I'm not sure adulation or recognition or whatever it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not not certainly, um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has a natural characteristic. You can learn about management on management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alfred Ramsey, which I take it into my, my business life and even my you know, talking to my family life, if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's the simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I learned during the Alfred Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at, at the time, without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything, and they're, they're left out, or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, even, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to 
they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of, of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff, thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise, thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.